Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hatch Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate once more, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We have our stories published all over the internet, and I usually let Ben... Uh, plug a couple of the publications that he's recently written for. Ben, tell the people where they can find your work. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. That's it? That, those are the only ones you want to talk about today? I guess you could also go to driving.ca, The Drive, or Haggerty. Okay, good. And you can find my work at driving.ca as well, um, and at autotrader.ca, and Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot, and EV Pulse. This is just going to be the unnamed plugging podcast. Honestly, I'm feeling a bit silly today because Sammy and I had a, a silly, I guess, early start to the podcast that will never be aired. <laughs> but uh, let's just say it involved child safety and cars and people who build websites that are maybe a little bit over the top when it comes to um, the dangers posed by vehicles. That's Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun uh, finding, go, sifting through our press releases and finding the related websites that, uh, that we find. But today, no press release coverage. Just car talk, right? Okay, let's get started um, with this week's podcast where we're talking about, well, our favorite subject of all time, supercharged V8, specifically the Hellcat V8, right? It has been a little while, Sammy, since we've talked about a Hellcat on this show. I want to say maybe since last fall when I think I had a Challenger wide body. That was probably the last time. Yeah, that sounds about right. And um, for all of our listeners out there who might not remember what a Hellcat is, uh, it's a very powerful engine, and uh, the the people over at Stellantis, which is a new name for the FCA group, um, I just, they love to stuff, they love they love to shove that Hellcat V8 into every vehicle they own. I, I want to just backtrack to the reasons why Sammy is not a PR person. He just described the Hellcat engine as a quote very powerful engine. For those of you who don't know what the Hellcat is, it is a very powerful engine. I feel like that's kind of an understatement when we're talking about a vehicle or sorry a, a drivetrain that in various gaze, um, guises is that the word various versions of this engine put up between 707 and 797 horsepower and and then there's the demon which uses the same engine which was i think was 840 horsepower Sammy, would you yeah. say that's maybe more than a very powerful engine so i mean i think that's the point i didn't want to i didn't want to call it a, an extremely powerful engine because there's also the the configuration in the demon which is which is much more powerful. So you have to be you have to be subtle here. Very so you're talking you're using like the, the right hierarchy way. the hierarchy of Hellcats. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Um, well, on that I hierarchy, think it's fair. come on now. How would you describe the Hell? You you describe the Hellcat motor as the most powerful engine? No, that's not fair. I think it's a crazy engine from a period of time that we're going to look back on fondly when we're all driving electric vehicles that make no sound, or perhaps being driven by a robot butler, which you'll of course be friend because that's your way but uh some of us are going to maintain an antagonistic relationship with the robots that drive us to and fro for the rest of our lives well i mean i think if you just called your robot butler uh sir hellcat you'll probably appreciate it a little bit more I, my robot butler refuses to look me in the eye <laughs> yeah. so that will well, give you a little his, of... his optical sensors won't won't 
uh, won't scan your eyes? Why didn't they? Why did they put those sensors on the palms of its hands? That's the most <laughs> disconcerting aspect of interacting with my robot butler. It's not ergonomics. Okay, it's, so what Hellcat are we talking about this week? Uh, we're talking about the 2021 Dodge Durango SRT Hellcat, Sammy. Wait, what? Yes. So are you making this up? This no, is a car that you picked up from your local. Uh, tuner shop right this This, can't be a real production vehicle it was only a matter of time sammy because as we know the durango shares this platform with the grand cherokee and we had the trackhawk version of the cherokee i want to say two or three years ago when it first showed up so there's no reason why they couldn't put the same motor inside the engine bay of the durango which already had an srt version the 475 6.4 liter naturally aspirated srt 392 so in a lot of ways, the Durango Hellcat is an SRT392 with the Hellcat drivetrain. It's, okay, great. It's, um, what it's are got, the other vehicles in this class? Uh, if you really want to stretch it, the only other vehicle in this class off the top of my head is the GLE sorry, the GLS63 from Mercedes-Benz because it has a third row of seating, right? And it's probably twice the cost. Yeah, I would say. So the Durango starts at... 82,000 and I wouldn't it would not surprise me if the GLS was twice the cost but I don't think the GLS can match it in terms of horsepower okay tell me more now what's what's the story here so it's everything you like about a big heavy SUV but with 710 horsepower and 640 pound-feet of torque I have to admit 45 sorry the Durango has always struck me as a very um a solid but overlooked entry in the segment that it plays in. Sometimes it feels a little too big. Sometimes it doesn't feel um, special enough. And then there's also reports of um, questionable, I think, um, reliability. And it's it's a pretty old vehicle nowadays. But I think like, like everything a, in the F, in the Stellantis lineup. I mean, with a few exceptions, it is a somewhat old platform. Yes. Right. But then. Um, again, like everything else in the Stellantis portfolio, once you add a Hellcat to um, their product, no matter how old they are, uh, things seem to brighten up. So this is the by far the most unusual Hellcat I've ever driven. Okay, what does that mean? There's a couple of reasons why I, I feel that way. The first is, remember I mentioned it's like an SRT392 with the Hellcat drivetrain? Yeah. Well, that applies to how it looks. Not just how the 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 platform has been managed. Uh, okay. There there are no differences visually between this vehicle and an SRT three ninety two, except for the badges on the outside and the absence of fog lights. Uh, otherwise, it, like you normally, you can kind of there are so many different challengers, right? I like to play a game where I try to identify a challenger based on what its hood looks like. <laughs> because It's not fair because they have different hoods now. I know, but for a long time, like you could tell which engine was under the hood based on how many scoops and where they were positioned. But isn't, on the isn't the most telltale one if it has the Viper style hood, that's like the that's like the real deal? Well, there's like the the biggest deal would be the demon hood, which has that really big rectangular scoop on it, right? Right, right, right. So for the for the Durango, it has exactly the same hood as the SRT, and and there's no like I'm I'm sure you can get crazy stripes and stuff. There's appearance packages, but you can also get those for the 392. So it's really stealthy. Uh, it it kind of just like the version I had was painted white. Uh, it didn't have any stripes, and it kind of just looks like any other, you know. SUV in its segment, it, it doesn't have a super aggressive personality aside from the already extra aggression you would have with the V8 version of the Durango. You know, like it's already kind of a 
um, it, it looks like not necessarily. I'm kind of stumbling over my words here. It doesn't look like a Highlander, but it also well, yeah, <laughs> you know. But it also doesn't really look super muscular. It looks medium muscular. So there's that right off the bat. Okay, it's got the dad bod of... Uh, of I wouldn't say that. I'd say maybe, like, the dad bod who, like, takes care of himself because he just got divorced. You know, like, he's, right. like, okay. hitting the gym. The post-divorce dad bod. Post-divorce, gotcha. six months later, gym bod of, yeah, of a 45 to 50-year-old dad. Uh, he takes care of himself now. It looks, okay. it's, it's decent looking as a truck, but it's not like, you know, the track hawk looks pretty scary. Um, <laughs> what do you mean by scary? Like, I don't know. It looks like murderer scary or jump scare scary. So the track hawk like... itself also doesn't look very different from the SRT Jeep, but I think right. the SRT Jeep is much more aggressive looking than than the Durango. Right. So um, okay. So of course it might not look um, all that different. You might not be able to tell it apart from a regular SRT Durango, but of course, unless you're deaf, you'll know that it's a different vehicle, right? Like, well, you do hear the supercharger whine even at half throttle, which I like. They're like like the little bit of wine it's like a it's like a rattlesnake's rattle it lets everyone around know that they're they're in trouble if i hit the throttle because we're in traffic <laughs> <laughs> um but in terms of how it drives sammy that's the second part of what makes this durango hellcat so unusual it is okay. the most muted version of the hellcat i've ever driven and in fact i feel like dodge has kind of gone out of their way to not hide the fact that there's a Hellcat under the hood, but to make the vehicle feel as normal as possible and to kind of help you realize that you're driving a 5,700-pound SUV that's really long and pretty tall and that maybe you don't need to be going full-bore crazy all the time. I think this is an important... I think that's an important trait to have with such a powerful, family-oriented vehicle. It's a tiny bit of refinement, right? And especially when you when you pointed out that possibly the only other vehicle that has this much power and this much space is from a German luxury brand. So well, maybe that's the benchmark that they were they were I don't know striving for. I don't. I, I think I don't, it's wild, but I don't think refinement is really what what I'm going for here or what I what I experienced. I think it's more obfuscation, uh-huh. like the 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 Hellcat. Part of this truck is hidden behind a veil that you have to pierce if you want to experience it to the fullest. Because when you when I got into the truck, there's an auto mode, right? For it has various drive modes. But unlike most other SRT products, the only real way you can access the drive modes there's two buttons. There's an SRT button and there's a launch control button. There's no like dial for various terrain settings. There's no like big launch control button uh, with like the the stoplights and stuff on it. It's it's really kind of hidden under the center stack. And okay. that takes you to the infotainment screen where you can choose your drive mode or you can customize your custom mode. I think like any other SRT, if you hit the, the drive mode button twice, it automatically takes you to your custom mode. So that's your chance to <clears throat> get the truck configured how you want it to feel. But when, you, when I first got in, for whatever reason, the auto mode, the transmission was set to eco, which I think is a kind of a base setting for a lot of these trucks. I know the auto mode shifts around in terms of how the transmission setting is... Um, is configured based on driving inputs. So if you're okay. driving crazy all the time, you're you're going to get the sport mode. But the reason I mentioned the eco mode, it really attenuates the feeling of speed you have the vehicle. Even if you floor it in eco mode for the transmission, the acceleration doesn't feel overwhelming. It feels good, but it's almost like you're using the black key instead of the red key, which restricts you to 500 horsepower. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. There's no black key for this Durango SRT. It's all red ah. key all the time. So, like, the eco mode is like a stealth black key almost. Okay. First of all, thank you, uh, Stellantis, for, for 
thinking about the environmentally friendly people out there who just want an eco version of the uh, or to drive their uh, their their Hellcat powered three row SUV uh, in eco mode. Yeah, I think if they that... want to get twelve miles per gallon instead of nine miles per gallon, this is the way to do it. Yeesh. I can't imagine Ecomo doing anything that that significant. I mean, I guess that's a that's a pretty significant. I mean, nine, twelve to nine is a pretty big drop off, no matter what. But that that just seems unnecessary. But I guess it needs to be done somehow. Unnecessary is the perfect word to describe almost any Hellcat SUV. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. But that doesn't mean they're. It's not fun. So like, if once you get out of oh, another funny thing about the Eco mode is there's a. Uh, it's there's a an icon on the gauge cluster at the top right, and it's a single. It's like a you know how like old hybrids used to have these leaves that would grow and wither depending on how eco friendly you were driving, and it would kind of train you to how to use the pedal and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So in the Durango Hellcat, it's just like a single tiny leaf that's green. <laughs> it's like the size of I don't know a, a, a pinhead or an apostrophe, and it, it's like. A single tear just rolling down the cheek of Mother Gaia <laughs> driving <laughs> driving the Durango down the road. It's it it's really quite compelling and evocative. But if you get out of eco mode and put it in the sport mode, bam, it's super fast right away. Uh the truck feels very, very, very quick. You can go into track mode if you want to, which I think puts seventy percent of the power to the rear wheels as opposed to a fifty fifty split um mm-hmm. that you get in, in auto mode. And you can configure all this stuff individually to create your own mode. The one thing I didn't like about auto mode is the paddle shifters aren't active by default. So I like, you know, downshifting, but I'm beside somebody to intimidate them with the exhaust sound. And I can't can't do that unless I'm in sport mode. Uh, But sport mode is super fast. Um, The suspension setup on this truck, Sammy, is identical to the SRT392, except for rebound on the shock absorbers is 20% stiffer. And I think they did a little bit more bracing underneath. So handling-wise, okay. I've driven the SRT392 at Indianapolis on the road course. Okay. And, I mean, it wasn't fun, but it was perfectly competent. Like, it'll it'll get around the track. It'll use up a ton of tire and brake. And it'll, you know, turn in lap times. But it's not, as I've said with any SUV I've had on the track, it's not an engaging experience. It's just kind of something you can do, not something you would choose to do. I'm assuming the Hellcat's going to be the same. It has a two-piece front brake setup that's 15.8 inches and wow. six-piston. That's optional on the SRT392 as well. So there's okay. really a lot of DNA shared between these models. Wow. <clears throat> that sounds over the top. I mean, everything about, as you mentioned, everything over about the uh, about these Hellcats is over the top. Um, is it, I mean, you, you mentioned it's unusual to drive. It feels a little unusual to drive for a Hellcat. Is it fun? Is it interesting? Is it d- does it make you feel good and and like you're like you've got a superpower like you do in every other Hellcat? Like that's the feeling you get. Yeah, like, I've I got mean, this unbelievable powertrain. Probably a secret control. a secret superpower is not a bad way to describe it. I mean, it does zero to sixty in three point four seconds. That's really Holy crazy. Moly. Yeah. It, wow. Yeah, and it does the quarter mile in eleven five. It has a top speed of one hundred and eighty miles per hour. Although I have no idea who has the intestinal fortitude to try and see if that's accurate. Because 5,700 pounds at 180 miles per hour equals, question mark, sad face yeah. when you try to brake or or if you try to corner. Um, and that's really where the Durango kind of falls down is it's not 
it's really not the kind of vehicle you would want to drive quickly. I mean, it's it's laughably fun to just slam the accelerator and get that crazy Hellcat acceleration. I mean, that that once that gets old, there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. And this is the most useful SRT Hellcat, I think, so far. Because you have, you know, decent interior space. You have a third row. You can stuff kids in the back. You could tow with this. It still has the 8,700 pounds of tow rating that you'd find in the regular Durango. But all of that comes with a massive fuel economy penalty. So even driving the 475 horsepower one, the fuel mileage is bad. This is probably like 15 to 20% worse than that. Wow. Maybe even more so. And you do get like 50% more power or something crazy like that. It's 475 to 710 is a huge jump. Right, but you're really um, you're paying for that on the day to day. So it's it's a weird vehicle, and like I don't get exactly who it's for. I understand who the Charger and the and the Challenger are for. I sort of understand who the Jeep is for, but the Durango is like it's kind of in a weird spot. Well, why? I mean, it, there's no fan. You think the the Hellcat enthusiast ha- doesn't have a family? If the Hell, there's already a Hellcat SUV. This is kind of just a bigger Hellcat SUV. And that extra size, it really, really impacts the handling. So, but I mean, these vehicles were never meant meant to handle, anyways, right? Like, but why the SUV you... versions of these Jeep vehicles, as much as they call the Jeep Cherokee uh, Grand Cherokee Trackhawk, um, I don't know if you really want it to be on the track all no, the time. You don't, as you mentioned, don't want any it'll SUV. murder tires, it'll, it'll murder brakes. And uh, you'll, it, like you said, it's something that you can do, not that you want to do it. Yeah, you don't want any SUV on the track ever. But it's like with the Durango, it's kind of saying here's a very practical vehicle that is not at all practical because of its fuel mileage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a weird kind of liminal space that this vehicle occupies. I don't understand who's buying it. Is someone buying it because they want to daily drive a useful vehicle? Or is someone buying it because they want a crazy, super powerful V8? And this is the only way they can get a vehicle that does everything they need to do and has that engine. I mean, that's got to be a small number of buyers, right? I mean, I keep thinking, I keep thinking um, really awkwardly about some of the electric SUVs that were that were exposed to or, or expecting to come out in the near future, um, like the Tesla Model X. And of course, this doesn't have the Hellcat V8, but these things can be surprisingly fast off the line. And don't come. They don't come with a fuel economy hit because they use all electric. Um, they have an all electric powertrain, but of course you have a limited range when you start fooling around with the with the powertrain in that same way. So is this a a, a gas only alternative to something like that? No, not at all. I don't think there's any <laughs> crossover. Although you know, I do know someone who has a, a supercharged Range Rover and a Model Y. Right, And they've been talking a lot about how they, they go out to a cottage from Toronto and they're saying that like the fuel costs over the over a year just on cottage trips would be $5,000. <laughs> like that's the differential between their Tesla and their Range Rover. But um, I don't I don't think in general, I mean, the experience you're getting from the Durango is raucous. It's a it's a hooligan. Uh, right. It's 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 a wild ride. And. Uh, a lot of that is the personality of the engine, the supercharger wine, the crazy exhaust sound. You don't get that with the EV. So mm-hmm. while on paper, maybe the numbers are close, I think the experience is very different. So I'm not sure that the same customer is looking at these vehicles. All right. Um, I think that's fair. Is the Durango still uh, relevant in this uh, three-row? I mean, if we take away the motor, we don't talk about the motor right now. Um, is the Durango still a functionally good three-row 
uh, SUV? Yeah, for sure. And I think it looks good, and I think it's nice to have a rear-wheel drive alternative. Um, you know, the Explorer that's out there now, I believe, is also rear-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would probably be – the Explorer Sport is probably the strongest um, competitor to, like, a Durango RT. Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't offer the V8. It's got a different personality. And I think it's not quite as nice inside. But it's nice to have these options. You know, I'm not going to knock the Durango for existing. I'm just trying to figure out, like, in a world where the Trackhawk exists, why am I buying the Durango? Right. Um, That third row, man. That would be it. But the third row is really only kid-friendly. I so mean, you, for some you, people, that's good enough. But it's like a specific time in your life where your kids are young enough to use that third row. And then once that's done, it's just going to be always folded. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I guess that's more space than a, than a Grand Cherokee. There, yeah, there is a bit more space. They're, they're priced almost the same, too. I think like the Grand Cherokee is like actually more expensive. Maybe I was wrong on the, on the uh, Durango price. Let me double check on that. No problem. Because I think um, I said 82000 but it might actually be more than that. There is also the um, – it's a very odd vehicle. I don't know if we even get it in North America. The Explorer PHEV with a 3-liter twin-turbo V6 that makes 450 horsepower and 620-pound feet of torque. That's the aviator drivetrain. Yeah, that's the aviator drivetrain. Drive I think there is a version of this you can get uh, maybe in another market. But it's just interesting that that's the alter- that would be one of the alternatives here. And it just does not – that's not the same. It just isn't even close to the same as a. Well, it would be an alternative to the SRT, right? The three ninety two, I would say. Right. But for the Hellcat, there's no, there's no alternative. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. I mean, even, even something like an X five M doesn't really match it because you're missing that third row. Right. Uh, any update on the price? Oh yeah, sorry. Um, it is. Uh, it does seem like the Jeep is more expensive. Okay. I think that makes sense because I think the Jeep has a – I mean, in my, if I remember correctly, the Jeep has a fairly decent interior. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like – the nice thing about this Durango is that there was a, a redo for 2021 mm-hmm. and um, it got a really nice uh, infotainment screen. I guess it's the next version of uh, Uconnect and it, it looks great and it's reasonably quick. I think Uconnect, we've talked about in the past, is the best infotainment system on the market or one of the best. And it's nice to see that it's not getting worse with time, which is always a risk when it comes to technology inside a car. Um, I think the newest version of Uconnect with that massive screen that you would get in a RAM, I think is, is it's an interesting application of it. Like, I, I don't know what, what else to say there. Well, this one's, a lot small, this one's a lot smaller than the RAM one, and it's right. a lot more use, usable as a result, I think. Like I didn't, I didn't tire out my upper arms going from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. Okay, good because that's what happens in the RAM. Uh, it it really does fatigue you there. I don't know. My wimpy little arms can't go up and down that many times. Okay, so the Trackhawk is eight thousand dollars more. Okay, it is eighty eight grand and eighty eighty thousand for the. I mean, before delivery for the Hellcat version of the Durango. And yeah. that is the other thing to consider here too is the Hellcat. Is eighty thousand nine ninety five like before delivery? The SRT is like sixty four thousand. So okay, wow. that's a pretty big gap. You're getting a huge amount of horsepower. There's no mistake, and the engineering that goes into that drivetrain is fantastic. It is really durable. You don't, you, you just don't hear about the same kind of problems with the six point two liter supercharged V eight 
in the Hellcats that you do in, say, Ford Motor Company's recent track cars like the uh, GT350, which has actually been the subject of a lot of lawsuits. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they might get a class action lawsuit or something going on. Yeah, so um, it's it's nice to, it's nice to know this vehicle is overbuilt. So you're getting that too. And I mean, I think now that we're looking at it, why aren't there more of these performance-oriented engines in SUVs and crossovers? I mean, other than the fact that it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. That's why. And then, I mean, you know, the Explorer Sport is still really fast. It's still an absurd engine to have in a family vehicle. And, and it's the just ST like... or whatever? Is that what it's called? The Sport yeah. or the ST? Yeah. I think it's ST now. But um, the, the, the fact that, you know, Dodge has decided to go full crazy doesn't, like, mean that other SUVs aren't quick, too. You know, it's just in comparison to a Hellcat, everything else looks lesser than. Um, I wonder what's the like to me. There's something. First of all, is there a um, is there a production limit on these Hellcat um, no, Durangos? No, all. they'll make they'll sell everyone. You want to buy ten? They'll sell you ten. <laughs> okay, and then the other thing I'm I keep thinking about is if Hell like in the long term Hellcats will they be sort of collectors' items? Will they will they be desirable? Um, They're going to wonder be t- if that's happened yet. They're going to be anachronistic time capsules of an era. And depending on how fuel availability and emissions controls and all that stuff shakes out in the future, that's really going to determine where a lot of these cars end up, you know, because they're not going to be classics in the sense that 60s and 70s cars or even, you know, sorry, 60s and before cars are considered classics from a design perspective, I don't think. Um, and I think they're they're much more common than we think they are. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's really hard to predict future political attitudes towards massive gas-guzzling V8s. All right. Um, anything else you want to add about this Durango uh, Hellcat? No, you, I are mean... Are you happy that they made it? Like, you sound confused that they would offer it, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like that much of a detriment. Like, for the people who will want this configuration of a vehicle, and I know, you know, there's so many jokes on Twitter about people saying, you know, Hellcat the, the Pacifica... Well, you've got a three-row Hellcat vehicle right here if you want your family go-getter to, to also be incredibly awful on fuel and uh, unbelievably fast. So it's it's really comfortable as a daily driver. There's really nothing about it that makes it difficult to use as a commuter car except for the massive fuel bill. I mean, if this is what you want, here it is. Come and get it. There's no no reason not to. Um, I just not sh- – it's not the version – it's not the Hellcat I would buy. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, whatever. The, the ma- amazing thing about the market is right now there's a Hellcat for almost everyone. You can get a pickup, a coupe, a sedan, a three-row SUV, and a and a standard SUV. So have at it. There you go. Um, what a wonderful thing white space in the market needed to be filled. <laughs> um, I think we should take this time to take a look at our our inbox because we've got a recently uh, we've got a recent question from one of our listeners. And Ko-Fi um, supporter, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, a, a Ko-Fi supporter. Uh, I'll quickly talk about our Ko-Fi. Ko-Fi is a way to um, donate to the to the podcast if you think you you like what we're doing. We don't ask. We don't uh, we don't charge anybody anything. But if you want to donate, you can easily do that. Buy us a coffee or um, some new f- for some some fuel for Ben to continue uh, testing all these Hellcats that he's got. So you just go to ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast and you'll find us right there. Yeah, that's Ko with a K. We have a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. That's right. And thank you so Um, much to everyone who's done that so far. We've had a lot of support and we really appreciate it. Yeah, the support has been fantastic. We really appreciate it. 
This time we've got a message from one of our Ko-Fi supporters and listeners. He says, hey guys, I'm considering selling my 2014 BMW 535 with a manual transmission. It was the last model year that a manual was offered. And is there any chance it would be a collector's item? It's in perfect condition. It only has 31,000 miles. But they've got two vehicles um, and they don't drive the BMW um, as often. So I think the question is, should we, should they, you know, hold on to it? Should they sell it at a premium? Like, what is the story with, with this? So I would say that it is not a classic and is probably not destined to become a classic, but I do think that it is a desirable enthusiast vehicle. And right now there is a market for cars uh, cars like this one, um, low low production number, manual sports sedans, unicorns, man, they're ba- they're basically unicorns. So places like Rad for Sale or Cars and Bids or Bring a Trailer are highlighting this type of car and getting better dollars for them than what you would get if you were just to list it on your local Auto Trader or eBay or or any or Craigslist because right. they're reaching an audience of people who appreciate vehicles that are fun to drive like this one and are willing to pay more for one that's in good condition. The reason I say it's probably not a classic in the future is because so many of these vehicles are made, like the 5 Series of that generation, that over time, it's um, it's really difficult to predict what characteristics are going to make one vehicle appeal to a, a car, car owning generation, a few car owners a few generations from now. And I, I just don't know, like, as I mentioned with the Durango and the Hellcat, it's like, Hard to tell how those will be seen once we're all driving EVs. You can apply that to like a whole swath of like 2000s and 20 teens cars at the same time, where I think that, you know, enthusiasts will appreciate them, but I don't know if society in general will consider them classics. I think you gave the right um, advice here. It, 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 I think finding um, an enthusiast to pay top dollar for it is the key here because I'm not sure everyone will, will feel um, that a manual is the right fit for a, for a, for a five series, and then uh, you're going to get the most money, the most people looking for it there on those kind of enthusiast websites. I don't know though. I keep thinking about those e- those E30 era three series, and then I think there's a five series of that era as well. Have become collectors' items, right? Like well, people people want those badly. I have an e I had an E34 five series, so the same era as the E30 with a manual. Uh, I look at prices every now and then, and they really haven't skyrocketed. It's the stuff that's the stuff that sells for higher dollars is like the M branded stuff or mm. like the 540s that were rare with the six speed. Um, and this in this case, this is also a rare transmission option. But I just it's still a mass produced car, you know. And when you start talking about modern mass produced cars, stuff that isn't hand built, stuff that isn't very production limited. Uh, from the factory stuff that was just production limited because few of them were built because people weren't really buying manual transmissions it starts to get really cloudy which is again this is something that someone who loves to drive is going to want to pay more for and finding the market for those people is where you're going to maximize your sale on that vehicle i don't think it's worth holding on to over the long term because i did a piece for inside hook a few months ago maybe more than a few months ago but i looked at um, people who had taken cars, like they bought them brand new and then they drove them into a barn or a garage, put no miles on them and then sold them like decades later or sometimes only 10 years later. And I wanted to see how they did in terms of investing. Okay. And in general, I took, so I took the purchase price of that, that vehicle at the time and then mm-hmm. I, inv- I invested it in the S&P 500, 
which is you know this the a stock index for American stocks. Right. Stocks almost always beat out holding onto that car, except for really, really, really low production exotics, and even then it was close. So like people who had Grand Nationals. What do you mean by low? Yeah, low production exotics. What does that mean? Well, so and uh, did you apply inflation? Yes. Okay. So uh, if you look at like a car like the Grand National, which a lot of people bought and parked, such um, a cool car. It wasn't very expensive new, uh, and they're selling for maybe six figures for a really really nice example now. But if you had invested the purchase price in the eighties, today you would have way way more money. But it, let's say you bought something like a Venemo, like a Lamborghini, and you paid like two million for it or whatever, and then like. <laughs> Nine years later or five years later, you sold it for $3 million. It's a lot harder to, in a short period of time, match your money in the stock market. Over a long term, though, stocks always win. So what I'm saying is for this BMW, I think if you sold it now, invested that money, over the long term, you would do better if that's what you're hoping for in the future. Whereas keeping it insured, I, all, all those quotes I just gave for, for cars, it doesn't include the amount of money to store them or to insure them. Which is going to eat away at whatever um, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for appreciation they would have over the years. Right. So really, it's it's not the best kind of investment if that's your perspective. Very few cars in the past, I would say twenty. Well, let's go fifteen years appreciated, um, like to that to the, already like or have become collector's items already. Yeah, it's all, almost none. I would say maybe the BMW One M. Which is a BMW. I mean, that is a BMW, similar to what our our listener is sending us, but just not the same, not to the same level. It was a low production value, rare vehicle, right? Yeah. So um, I, I I can only really think of the 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 one M. I can't think of anything else in the last ten years. I mean, except for Mustang Boss three hundred two. I think is the other one. No, my brother in law bought one two years ago, and he didn't pay crazy money for it. So like, interesting. It's, uh, the the other cars are like you know high end exotics where they made five where they made two right. that that kind of stuff never loses value really. I mean we we keep thinking about like I keep hearing stories about the Lexus LFA and there's still models that haven't been sold or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like that. But that's a car. I mean, how many did they make? Right, like less yeah, than hundred. Five hundred, I think. They made five hundred of those. Am I mistaken or three hundred? I don't know. Okay, well. Here you get the wrong information at the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. <laughs> don't don't base any investment decisions on the information. On what we're, we're saying, oh. but I mean, if you're not going to enjoy, if, you, if you're not enjoying the car because you're not driving it, then selling it to someone who is going to enjoy it because they're an enthusiast is is never a bad idea, you know. And then you you create garage space where you can put something cool later, or you invest that money and you pay for something that you think is important um, or that is important to you. Uh, it th- there's a lot of options, I would say. Ben, there are 500. 500 of them? Yeah, I think 525 total. I don't trust your Google abilities. I feel like that you just pulled that number out of anywhere. That's true. LFAresources.org <laughs> forward slash Sammy Answers. Do you think there are any current cars that could be considered future classics? We're on a generational shift. There's a lot of automakers that are saying in the next five years we're going to shift from um, offering – we're going to shift to offering only electric vehicles. That means all the new vehicles – that we currently have might be the last of their kind of kind, right? I I can't. Like, what about those Porsches, like those GT3s, or I don't know. No. GT3s always seem to be more expensive. Than I can't really, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. Current future classics, it's it's really hard. I mean, uh, didn't we do a whole? You and I wrote an article about that. I believe what vehicles will be collectible in the future, but uh, in terms of modern stuff, I, I don't think we went past 2010. So. That's right. 
All right. Um, anything else you want to talk about this week? No, I think it's good. Uh, what do you? What if, if people wanted to send us a question uh, for us to answer, or just wanted to send us, you know, some type of abuse, or maybe wanted to intervene? In why? Sammy's, why are you? Why are you asking them to send intervene us in Sammy's lifestyle? Um, maybe how would they do that, Sammy? What's a good way to get in touch? Look, the easiest way to do it is to come to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. Uh, there's a contact form there. You fill that out, and that information, that message, lands on our inbox. It, no matter how abusive or productive and positive the commentary is. Additionally, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben on the world where everyone is pretty positive. That's Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore Ha, where I'm fending off trolls all the time. And um, if you if you go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, you can also subscribe to us there. There's all sorts of buttons that let you do that with um, Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, Spotify, and pretty much every podcatcher you can think of. If you, could, if you don't want to search for us on your podcatcher service, you can just do it right from the website. And you can also listen to our podcast from the site and go back through all 235 episodes, I believe we're up to now, and see our evolution over time and, and witness Sammy's beautiful transformation as he emerges from his shell into stretches his butterfly wings out across the universe. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> additionally, if you like what we're doing, uh, you can leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher or send us a Ko-Fi donation. Ben, what are we talking about next week? Next week, I'm going to be talking about a vehicle I was very excited to drive, the Mercedes-AMG E63S Wagon. Very cool. That's a long name for things. Uh, I have a much shorter name, Mitsubishi Outlander, and um, a Kia Sorento to talk about. So stay tuned for that, okay? All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.